Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is part two of my conversation with Sri Sri Ravi Shankar from my June 7th, 2014 conversation, which was part of the Seek Care Conversation on Compassion series. I hope you enjoy. So anyone who has a question, there are mics on either side. Uh, if you wish to uh, line up, we'll just... Uh, uh, ask a few questions. Uh, go ahead, young lady. Uh, I, I'm Chair, and, and my question is that uh, about the different kind of compassion, and uh, for example, and how to transition from one level of compassion to another. For example, maybe a child is angry, and the parents say, "Okay, it's okay if you're angry. I'll give you this," and they're fine. But as they grow up, they need to learn to control their emotions. And the expectation is different, but sometimes there is trouble in going from one level of compassion to another. And what is your guidance on this area, how we can make it smoother? Okay. You know, compassion needs uh, two attendants with it all the time. One attendant is wisdom. The other attendant for compassion must be detachment. If any one of this la is lacking, that the compassion will suffer itself. Misplaced compassion is no good and compassion without detachment is no good. Supp just suppose, just, just imagine a doctor is attending to a patient and he gets so attached to patient and he comes back home and he's all very upset because the patient is, uh, is not well and starts crying and wailing and what, what will happen? His whole mind gets crowded, you know, he, he won't be able to have the clarity uh, in wanting to do what he should do. The ideas won't be clear. So, Detachment is essential. Doctor or a nurse could be the best example. They do the job, but they are not attached. Whereas the family member of a person who is in a hospital is not in the same state of mind as a nurse. So they won't be able to take care of the person as well as nurse or a doctor does. That's why every doctor, if they're very close, someone very uh, close to them or there, they usually refer to other doctors or take the help of other doctors in that case. So detachment or dispassion is one accompaniment of compassion. Another is wisdom. For wisdom I can give you one example. There are many homeless people. In Los Angeles the other day, some of our people who are doing social work here said, we are giving food to the homeless people. Okay, it's good for some time. We want to give it continuously for on a daily basis, I said no. Because look at them, if they are sick, if they are invalid, then we must do it. If they are young people who have a lot of energy, who can uh, work hard and earn their bread, should be given that opportunity rather than making them lazy. Do you see? 
So then we are doing something wrong. Same way, if you in India, if you drive somewhere, there are beggars who would come, and begging has become a sort of profession. You would be. It came in the media also. You'll find that many of the beggars can lend you money <laughs> to buy house. So you they miss that's a misplaced compassion. You stop the when they were in the all in. Green signal, the red signals, you know, in the stop signs, the beggars come, kids come, they ask for alms. Oh, you are compassionate; you give money to them. I would uh, advise against doing such acts of compassion, which does not associate itself with wisdom or discrimination. Yeah. Yes, sir. Ah, uh, my question is: Can you have spirituality in the absence of faith in any higher power? If so, how? Yes, faith usually uh, can caters to three levels. One is faith in the goodness of people, right? And second, faith in yourself. If you say, "I don't believe in anything," at least you are believing that you are what you are saying. so that in i don't believe in anything will not it doesn't hold good you have to say i don't believe in anything except myself <laughs> right so you believe in yourself faith in yourself and then faith in some unknown power these are the three levels of faith from any point you start somewhere you will recognize there is something beyond your uh, comprehension or your understanding So you don't have to force yourself to believe in a god sitting somewhere in the heaven trying to give you a finger, and you try to catch him, he goes further away. <laughs> you don't need to believe in that. We simply have to know you are there, and who are you? Who am I? What is this mind is all about? Where do the thoughts come from? You know, just go in this. This is good enough. Yes, um, I'm interested in the breathing techniques that you mentioned, Dr. Doty, and the research and um, how that ties to compassion. That's one kind of question. And then the other question is: Have you participated or tried the breathing exercises yourself, um, either any kind of pranayama or the Sudarshan Kriya? And if you have, could you share your experience? And if you haven't, would you like to? <laughs> Is that, is that like a date? <laughs> uh, wow, this is certainly turning into an interesting conversation. So I think there is now a fair amount of evidence regarding uh, breathing techniques for increasing vagal tone, which then is associated with an increase in uh, parasympathetic nervous system output. And that side of your autonomic nervous system engages that within us, which gives us this desire for social connection. And I, I didn't go into this, but if you look at our evolution as a species, to have theory of mind, to have abstract thinking, to have complex language, required an enlargement of our cortex, a prolonged gestational period, a very small litter. As a result, that offspring required being taken care of for about a decade and a half by the mother. So there were these very 
integrated uh, components into our DNA, if you will, associated with nurturing, bonding, caring, and recognizing the suffering of your child, if you will. And so that's an innate part of us, and that is where, if you will, the sense of compassion and concern for others. And then as we evolved into hunter-gatherers, which was tribes of 10 to 50, which was our primary survival strategy in a hostile environment uh, until eight or 10,000 years ago, there was an absolute requirement of a couple of things. One is that you recognize the emotions or the feelings or the suffering of another, because by not doing so, that put the group at risk. So that was an inherent component also, which was uh, uh, promoted as we evolved. So integrated into that was ultimately this recognition that the type of breathing techniques you described pushed you away from the flight or fight sympathetic nervous system engagement to the parasympathetic, which is more associated with nurturing, bonding, and connecting. And that is our default mode. That is when we function our best, and that is why we connect with others by doing that. And as we know, the East is filled uh, with great insight and wisdom and, and is a culture thousands of years old compared to ours in the United States of a few hundred years. And there's great to be learned. And scientists are taking credit for what the ancients actually already knew, which was these types of mental practices and ability to change your brain. So getting back to your specific question, uh, so I was actually taught a meditation practice when I was 13 years of age by a woman in a magic shop which is a somewhat complex story. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but, but that fundamentally changed my life, and that is the technique that I learned and that puts me in that position. There are many different types of breathing techniques, and as anyone who knows me, I'm interested in the science, not necessarily uh, different types of Buddhist or Hindu or et cetera practices. Although I tell some of the people who work with me who are often oriented in this direction that if we can find techniques wherever they come from, whether the Book of Mormon or Scientology or from alien abduction, I'm uh, willing to listen and test those and see if those could be a benefit. I'm not sold on one thing. What I'm sold on is what science shows us is a benefit and the practices that we were just talking about. And even as uh, Sri Sri was saying, TM, these have profound effects to positively affect your brain if they're done in the right context. And, you know, there's not one recipe to make cookies. There are lots of different recipes. And every individual is an individual and through their upbringing, through their background, different things resonate with them, and any of those things which would offer benefit to someone being better connected and more thoughtful and compassionate, I'm all for. Did that answer your question in a very convoluted way? Well, well, uh, let me add one yeah. thing to that. You know, it's always better the researchers don't practice the techniques <laughs> so that they are very objective and they see the impact or effect on the subjects. And this should be a quote. The scientists, usually I, I tell scientists, 
well, you are doing research, you just do research and you don't practice the technique because when you practice it, somewhere there is a possibility it influences you to for or whatever. So it will be more objective. Actually, science is that where you have to have an objective data, objective analysis. And it's always better that the researchers can wait for some time and then practice. <laughs> Well, no, no, I, I, and I think that's absolutely correct. In fact, uh, frankly, we see scientists now who are swayed in one direction, absolutely insist uh, that their particular practice or what they're promoting is the way. And uh, you have to be very careful about this because uh, it's whether, like the pharmaceutical companies who do the research. Oh, no, those, those guys are always honest. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, well, and you know, that's the other thing. There's uh, also uh, <laughs> publication bias because what gets published, it's stuff that works. It's never the stuff that doesn't work, right? <laughs> but uh, no, I think that's absolutely correct. And so we are seeing a large number of the scientists who are doing work in this domain who are accolades of a particular practice and that's when they tell your, the whole lab, you all need to do this, and, uh, and then you'll really get the insight into why this is so great, which of course, frankly, I think is, is very wrong. As I just said, I have no interest in any of them because you know, it's, I sit up here with different people who are uh, really incredibly self-aware, who've spent many years in different types of practices, and I'm not sold on any one, as you see, because I hang out with them all. I just like hanging out with them. But the reality is I'm not sold. I'm interested in techniques that improve people's lives and make them more compassionate and serve others. And the point of these types of conversations is to show the broad spectrum of activities or practices which can have an impact hopefully associated with scientific inquiry. But even if not, if they work for certain people, you know, I, I, I'm all for them. So I don't want you to know I, I try not to be biased, although in some ways I am. Hi. You mentioned being young and when you were a child and knowing certain things but not necessarily knowing how to prove them. And, you know, given everything that we just discussed about the focus on science and using science as the proof, I was wondering if you could speak more about your journey and your path to prove those things from your childhood. I think it's... Well, you know, um, there are a number of incidences. Uh, here, Michael Fishman is uh, sitting here. He has written a book, Stumbling into Infinity. He has put some of my anecdotes in that. There is one more a French author has written. Maybe you can pick up those books and uh, right now I'm not getting any specific incident that I had to uh, tell and quote you. There are many, many, like everyone, all of our lives are a book by itself. So each one of our life is fascinating and um, mine is not less fascinating, I tell you. <laughs> so, so. There are a number of, uh, number of beautiful uh, incidences that has happened. But I think we'll reserve it for some other time. Hi, my name is Divya. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I know it's an honor for all of us in the room. Uh, my question for you is, if you were given the chance to speak to all of the terrorists around the world, 
What would you say to them? All of the, all of them? All of them. Terrorists? Yes. Oh. It is the only place they can all be assembled is in the prison. <laughs> and there I can take care of them, I tell you. If I just need few days to interact with them. But they have to be brought to one place. Now, other than this, uh, we have done some work with uh, some of the terrorists in, in Jammu and Kashmir and in Iraq. We have done some work with them. Basically, the concept in them is wrong. They misunderstand. You know, their, their whole mindset needs to be shaken a little bit. And this cannot be done just through words. What I usually tell them, look, do you feel anxiety? I said, yes. You want to achieve your goal, just why don't you do some breathing? Come sit and do some breathing. They start with them like that. When they do some breathing, they, they get listening, you know, they are able to listen uh, more. And then they, when they let go of the stress, they see other people also as part of them. And once that uh, sensitivity comes and sensibility comes, the rudeness and the crime disappears. The cruelty disappears. They are insensitive. That's that's very. It's obvious, you know. They are, there is no sensitivity nor sensibility, and both can be invoked in them. We have done some work uh, with both the Maoist terrorists in India. We could get some one thousand of them lay down their arms and come to mainstream. We are doing some work with the Islamic terrorists in. First we started in the prison and then some of our teacher had the guts to go to the den in the forest and teach them and talk to them, give them a little glimpse of meditation. Since it's non-denominational, they're able to take it. Once they take it, they are human beings like us. Thank you. I, over the past like few months or few years, I have been having trouble trying to rationalize between these two differences, which is that there are there are six billion people in this world, and all of them have grown up in different circumstances and are different. And at the same time, all of us share this genome, and and in many ways are extremely similar, right? Because we have like 99.9% of our genome is exactly the same. So how do we, how do you start rationalizing between these two contradictory, seemingly contradictory statements and find like a path in between to compassion? We are all same, yet we are different, yet we are unique. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty in this planet. That's the beauty of the universe. Things are very simple, at the same time very complex. You know, you just eat a banana and you digest it, it's so simple. But if you look into the mechanics of digesting a banana, it's very complex. First it gets mixed with the saliva, then goes to the esophagus and gets into the stomach with the HCL acid, with the hydrochloric acid, then it moves to the duodenum, then it mixes with the bile juice and then the pancreatic juice, and then, then it moves through the intestine. My goodness, the whole digestion of banana is a very complex phenomenon. 
at the same time it is very easy so our life is such that we are able to house the unmanifest huge consciousness the boundless borderless consciousness yet within the boundaries so this being finite and to be able to be connected to the infinite consciousness this ability we have it's so amazing that's why i said studying the consciousness is the most amazing no can say what's the difference between consciousness and brain brain is like the um, the boom box or or the the screen of a television but consciousness is really the waves which have been uh, you know which gets exhibited through the through the box so brain exhibits consciousness consciousness itself is vast yet it can be perceived in a finite body so this is this, this whole thing easy at the same time we are very different and yet we are the same we are unique in some way and we are the same in another way so go eat some bananas <laughs> um you know it's interesting because that the challenge is i mean this this young man has brought this point up and i think it, it is very difficult to uh, sort of deal with this paradox it's the same paradox of people who have so much and uh actually oftentimes give so little and this is one of my own motivators yet you see people who have so little and will give everything and trying to understand that and make others who have so much oftentimes understand that the greatest meaning in their life is associated with caring and giving it's actually a struggle sometimes because they're lost in chasing after things that don't offer that deep sustenance which actually uh deals with that uh deep hunger see everything is related in our metaphors to our bowels and our stomachs and all of this stuff but i think it's uh true i don't know <laughs> go ahead young man i will have a couple more questions yeah, i know it uh hey shushri mr daddy <laughs> uh, i'm herschel hi herschel how are I'm, you i'm well good, good. uh yeah I just graduated from this uh place um and I was wondering uh one thing I noticed while I was here is that a lot of the students are extremely ambitious and one of their biggest fears is that if they took the time to become content that their comfort would kind of like take away their drive to achieve a lot of things and I think it's a huge sticking point in people's spiritual, emotional, mental development. So I was wondering if you think that that fear is grounded. Do you think that contentment and ambition are at odds? If frustration is the motivating factor, not contentment. Opposite of let let us see from the other side. If frustration is the motivating factor, then Afghanistan, Lebanon, Beirut, all these places must have been the most creative most entrepreneurial places on the planet because the most frustrated people are there so we need to understand contentment is not laziness this is is not lack of drive that's why i said 
We need passion. But passion alone is not possible. You cannot only breathe in. Somewhere you have to breathe out. When you breathe in, you must breathe out. So passion must accompany with dispassion. That keeps a person sane and balanced. Otherwise, just passion can burn you down. It can give you sleepless nights. It can create anxiety because you have a passion. And it takes time to realize your passion. When you have only passion, then, you know, because you, it takes time and you can't endure that time, time factor. You want it right away. You know, too much to do, too little time, no energy causes stress. And if you are stressed and all that you land up is with all that great passion, depression comes along your way. So I would say the students should have the passion at the same time, have enough wisdom to have contentment, some degree of contentment, if not total. Just a... You were going to drag something. I was just going to comment. You also have to understand what the driver is for that individual's working so hard, right, or trying to accomplish. Because one of my own experiences is that there are two groups of people. They're, they're the people who are motivated by this inner drive innately and want to maximize their own potential and abilities. There's a subset of people who feel that they can only be accepted or judged by competition and beating others. And so their whole value system oftentimes is wrapped up in accomplishment because that external validation is what they're seeking. And when that's the driver, there's always an emptiness because again, that appetite can never be filled enough. You have to be able to be content with saying, I did the best I can, the self-acknowledgement, and if you will, self-compassion, and that's okay, versus driving yourself into the ground and trying to accomplish something when you're waiting for everyone to tell you how great you are because you think that is the metric which gives you value. Yeah. Yes, sir. Sri Sri, is every individual who is alive right now, does each individual have a unique purpose? If so, does the collective humanity that's alive right now have a theme to that purpose? And how is that purpose different from, or how is that theme different from maybe 10 years before, and how different will it be 10 years from now? Why such easy question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think he has answered <laughs> I don't know <laughs> you know first of all uh, to acknowledge or to wonder whether there is a purpose in life or not is there any purpose in life this itself is a step many do not even come to this point they just exist exit uh, without even Asking this question, what is life, 
was the purpose. It, if at all there is a purpose, number one. Uh, second is, one who knows the purpose of life is not going to tell you. <laughs> and anyone who tells you this is the purpose of your life, they simply don't know. <laughs> so, this very question in you, what's the purpose of my life, is like a vehicle for you to reach your goal. And someone who knows will not take away your vehicle and ask you to walk the way. So, pat your back, give a pat on your back that you got this question, what's the purpose of life? Again here, you can say one, your individual purpose in your life and what, what you can do to the society, what you can contribute to the world. That these two can be two different questions that uh, you can ponder on and one day or any day you can find an answer. I, I was wondering what can we do about the rash of shootings on school campuses that's sweeping the country, both in high schools and in universities. As an educator, I'm wondering what I can do and what's a response that we can have. You know, we have developed a program called Yes Plus and Yes for School Children. This has worked in many district schools here uh, around this country. I don't have all the details. You can ask uh, some of the volunteers or some teachers. You can go into our website and find, find out. In Chicago school district, when they taught the children how to breathe, and so they said the violent incidents came down from 265 to about 62. So about nearly one-fifth one of the, uh, it came down to one-fifth incidences of violent uh, clashes among the kids, among students. So I think it's very much possible if we teach children how to control their anger, their aggression, by giving them little glimpses of meditation, short one, five, 10, 15 minutes of meditation. You empower them. You, you let them have that uh, power, say, over their own raging emotions. This is one possibility. There could be many such possibilities. Yeah. Dear Shishriya, my name is Dana. And my question is, how would you describe the state of enlightenment or perhaps the deepest connection with the Creator? And how would you know if you experienced that? Wow. <laughs> I would like to answer this with another question. <laughs> How do you know when you have a headache? You feel it. You it's feel so it. obvious, right? Even the whole world stands on one side and tells you, you don't have a headache. You will say, you will disagree. You say, no. Same way. There's something that's so obvious, so real, feels that you are part of this whole. This body is just like a pebble hanging below a big balloon sort of feeling. That, that you are a nobody. Actually, feels like you, you got back to your innocent childhood by which you, they have all come from there. I'd say, you know, if you, if you happen to find yourself, you, you feel that, oh, yeah, I know. 
I've been there all the time. That's what it is. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say it was like a banana being peeled. <laughs> Um, so, so the question was uh, really trying to connect research with uh, consciousness. Uh, with the advancements that we see in artificial intelligence, there is you know, at least some concern out there about terminators coming back and you know, uh, you know, causing havoc in the world. So rather than that, do you expect to see machines actually being more conscious, you know, like adjusting the thermostat in your home when you're actually home? Uh, self-driving cars, you know, where do you see this artificial intelligence going and where do you see the role of consciousness in artificial uh, machines? I can't say much about artificial intelligence because I'm not an expert, I've not studied much on that. But anything you see on this planet, any scientific discovery, any technological advancement is all done by the consciousness. There is consciousness behind every discovery, every new technology. Because it's, a, it's through consciousness, consciousness only these things have happened. That basic ingredient uh, that there was someone who is perceiving and from where the ideas are coming, that aspect I would call is, the, is your true consciousness. And for any such thing, you need three things. Uh, intuition, correct? Intuition comes from there. Innovation comes from there. Inspiration comes from there. So, virtually you cannot separate consciousness from anything in the world. We're done. Thank you. <laughs>